Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Insider. Before we get started with the show, I'm here live at Blackpool Magic Convention and I'm going to go and ask Andy and Josh to tell us all about the new playing card website. Hello, I'm Andy Gladwin. And I am Joshua Jay and we're here to talk about Vanishing Ink playing cards. We wanted to know what would it look like if Vanishing Ink focused entirely on playing cards. So we started a new website, a new brand called VanishingInkPlayingCards.com. And I think the thing that you're going to get most out of this is curation. There are so many junk decks of cards. Bad finishes, ugly feel, bad designs. We have tried to eliminate all of that and present to you our favorite decks and the decks of the highest quality. And this isn't just another website selling the same old decks. We give you new and custom information about every deck we sell. So you want to know if there's custom faces? We include that. Is there a double backer in that deck? How is the box designed and who designed it? That is all included when you check out our website. All the copy is original with us, so we examine each deck. We photograph it in a way unique to our website. And we hope that these curated decks find a place in your collection. And you'll get all of the benefits of Vanishing Ink. You get the free shipping promise, the satisfaction guarantee. Everything you've learned from Vanishing Ink, you'll now get on our new playing card site, VanishingInkPlayingCards.com. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Insider, brought to you just for a change by Vanishing Ink. Today, we're lucky enough to have on the line, all the way from that there, Canada, underground card legend, Shane Cobalt. Shane, how are you this morning, this afternoon? I'm, I'm well. That's a, that's a big introduction. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all good. What's your origin story? You've got 24 seconds. My origin story? Oh, yeah. God. Um, I didn't know I was a superhero all of a sudden. Um, my origin <laughs> story. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I really have like, a really big story. You know, everyone's got the same story, right? Like We, we yeah. kind of all have the same story. We got into magic between like... Eight and ten years old, you know, my grandfather showed me a trick back in the day and didn't explain it to me, and that drove me absolutely mad. So I uh, I eventually learned how it was done, and that was kind of the bug biting. Um, I just sort of took off from there. But uh, the origin stories are funny because I feel like there's three of them. I feel like there's always uh -huh. three origin stories. There's like, what was your introduction to magic, period? When uh -huh. did you get your first real magic book? Like, right. when did you take it seriously? Uh -huh. And when did you, like, actually start doing it at a higher level? Okay, go on then. What was your first? We, 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 I don't know how many episodes we've done, but you're just wrecking the <laughs> format already, Shane. But let's roll with it. When did you get your first serious magic book, and what was first it? First serious magic book. Um, okay, so the narrative is a little bit challenging because it was one of two books. I forget which one came first. It was either Expert Card Technique, or okay. it was the Hard Magic of Paul Lepaul. Okay, those were like the two books that stand out as like the serious books that sort of, like they definitely rocked my world. And at what age was that? I think I was about 12, maybe 13. Oh, okay. Somewhere around <laughs> there. Kind of serious stuff for a 12-year-old. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, like, I've always been under the impression that no one wants to do self-working magic. I don't think uh -huh. anyone got involved. Like, no one got into magic to do the self-working stuff. I think sometimes we get, we get stuck in that place, or sometimes, you know, you find a, a little hole, and, you, you know, it's warm, and it's fuzzy, and it's cozy, and you stay there, but... I mean, like, I, I remember opening LePaul and being like, this is what I was looking for. Right. Th this, this is what magic I was thinking of, of when I was thinking about magic. And, um, and LePaul is, I mean, that's an extraordinary book. It is. Um, hilariously, I never read the introduction to the book. I just, like, dove in. So I didn't know it was supposed to be, like, a <laughs> difficult book. And in the very beginning, the introduction actually says, this is an advanced book on card handling and blah, blah, blah. I completely uh, forgot that part and just went straight into it. Yeah, you know, if you don't know, 
You just did it, right? That's exactly yeah, yeah, what yeah. happened to me. I, ju I just, and I didn't live close to a magic shop. Like I live quite far away considering. So if I wanted to go to the shop, like my mom or someone had to drive me there. And my mom is a saint. She would drive me to the magic shop, pay, you had to pay for parking. And it was like, it was quite expensive considering. Pay for parking. And she would like park the car and just sort of roam around the area, which wasn't terribly interesting to her. And I would spend hours and hours in that shop. And I asked someone to recommend a book to me one day. I said, if you could recommend one book to me, what would it be and why? And he said, The Card Magic of Paul. And uh, I just bought it on that recommendation alone. And because I lived so far away, I had a, like big gaps of time before I spent time with magicians. Sure. So I was a very naive child. I'm, I'm very gullible. I've always sort of been very gullible. <laughs> and uh, I always just thought that if, I, if you owned a book, you did everything in it. So surely right. everyone owned this book because the guy at the magic shop told me that was the book. And mm -hmm. surely everyone actually knew the book front to back. So that was my goal was learn everything in Lepal. Um, I never got to the point where I could do everything flawlessly. But I, there, was a, there was a point when I could do like most of that book really well. Uh, there's some really fun stuff in there. There's a one-handed second deal in there that's really interesting where you use your, your left thumb and it pulls uh -huh. back like it buckles the card back. Ah. And it buckles the top card and the second from top card, and you release just the second one, and it shoots out. Oh, I'm going to go and look it up. The book is behind me on my bookshelf. But right, book, see? It was, it was Browser's Den, wasn't it? That, the, the That's shop. right, Browser's Den of Magic. And that played an important part in your life. Huge part of my life. Yeah, Browser's Den was like, that was the hangout. That was the place to go to, to kind of hang out. And I mean, and it's bittersweet, you know, because I love the magic shop. I still love the magic shop, and, and the proprietor, the owner, Jeff Pinsky, is a, he's a great guy, great shop owner, and he's a great magician in his own right, you know, like as a demonstrator and the stuff he shows mm -hmm. people, like he'd be doing like strike second deals, you know, to force okay. cards on people, uh, just like punters walking in, you know, like regular people that want to buy like, you know, I don't know, a Svengali deck or a cheap trick, sure. and he'd be doing these like second deal forces and things. Now, don't get me wrong, like, I mean, he, he wasn't doing it in like a gambling sort of fashion, there was like a pretty, pretty good necktie on it, uh -huh. but like to have a magic shop where the magic shop owner does... <laughs> strike second deals. Sure. You're like, you're, you're in a good spot. But the other thing he did that I think was absolutely brilliant is um, he always had a really good book selection. Like he was great at keeping books on the shelves and he still is. He still has an incredible book selection. And um, he had, there was this little square card table with this like old worn black velvet cover on it. And there was only four chairs. And there was a certain sort of like respect to sitting down at the table. And for years, for ages, I never sat down at the table. It was just like, I didn't think I could. Like you sort of had to not be invited, but it was almost like you didn't, you had to feel comfortable and welcome enough to sit down. Mm -hmm. But what Jeff Pinsky did so beautifully at Browser's Den, and he still does it today, is he always keeps an open copy of a book. And he had no problem with you like taking a book down and opening it up and reading through it and seeing if it's the kind of thing you wanted to keep. And what I think brilliant. was brilliant about it was two things. One, it's incredible business practice. Mm -hmm. Because if, as a kid, if I read a book and I thought it was good, I wanted to buy it. Sure. Like you didn't like go and learn, then go home, and then like just keep going back and forth to learn, uh, back and forth to learn the material. I mean, you did that as well, but like you got books that you're like, man, I really wish I had that book. The thing I learned was so good, and uh, that that changed everything for me. So he he was he was super kind, and he would let like me and other guys just sit in the shop for hours reading these books without buying them. And when we had enough, you know, pocket money saved up, we'd buy anything and everything we could. Uh, and you, you'll see like a, a, quite a number of magicians out of Toronto have a pretty good sort of knowledge base. And, and I think that's 100% attributable to Browser's Den and to Jeff Pinsky. He, uh, wow. he has an astounding magic shop. Even to this day, it's one of the best in the world. I, I do a lot of traveling. I'm always on the lookout. And I'm always, uh, I'm always very grateful for the magic shop that I've got back home.
A lot of your way of doing it is around being slow and soft. Why do you think that's important? Because I don't think anyone wants to see a magician move quickly. I think it, it just, it's, it's such an easy out for the audience to go, ah, he moved fast, you know, or like, mm-hmm. oh, the hand is quicker than the eye. But, you know, I think it's unfortunate that a lot of people don't uh, try the approach of very, very slow and soft, because when you do, you'll actually see people go and react in different ways. Um, I get a lot of silence, which is a very good reaction. I like silence. I, I want people to be like quiet. Um, mm. it, it's, it's a nice moment when they don't have the capacity to clap, you know, when they just sure. don't like, they sure, don't sure. know what to do. When you go slow and smooth, they've got nowhere to run. You know, like if you do a beautiful color change, you just gently wave your hand over the card and it melts into another card. I mean, there's no response to that. Mm. When we've got something like a snap change or like a very quick sort of flicker of a thing, it's sort of, um, I think it's easy for someone to go, oh yeah, but there was a quick thing there. I, something happened there. Mm. When it's slow and smooth, everything blends into one thing. Um, I've also found that there's like, this is something you can't really describe verbally, like you sort of have to see it, but, and this is going to sound like absolutely crazy, but um, there's like, there's a, there's like one particular speed that if you move at it, like it's just a, a very specific sort of speed that you move at, like people's eyes almost glaze over and they just sort of almost get enchanted or entranced by it. Um, too slow and it looks awkward, too quickly and it looks suspicious, but there, I think there's a sweet spot that you can move at that literally just looks magical. And it resonates with people. Um, I've also found that if you, it's, I I know, like again, I know it sounds crazy, but if you have a very slow action at that very particular speed, and then you do a very quick action, and then a very, very slow action to finish it, for some reason, the quick action vanishes. Ah. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Okay, well, we sat down the other day, we had a couple pints. Uh Uh, I showed you the turnover pass. Yeah. That's a great example of a move that has a very slow action with a very quick action and a very slow action at the end uh, of it. Ah, yes, yes. And you just, the fast action just sort of melts into both sides of the slow action. You just, you don't see it as a quick move. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. You enjoy teaching. What do you think appeals to you about the process? It forces me to truly understand what I'm doing. So it makes me much better at what I do by being able to explain it to somebody else. Uh, one, that was the original intention of it. Was like I just, I, I want to understand more, and I was so always it's completely told that, you selfish. Know, you just wanted to get better yourself. Largely, yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, there is a remarkable selfish intention to, of course. I, I want to know how this stuff works because if I can teach it, I can make it better, right? Okay, yeah, and yeah, yeah. There's some technique where people are like, I just kind of do this. And you don't really know how. Now I've been teaching for, for a number of years, and um, I find that I think we, we have a serious problem with teaching in magic. We just, most Go people on. just don't know how to, to do it. it it's, it's very difficult for people to comprehend uh, how we teach magic a lot of the time. And, and you experienced it. We sat down. We went over yeah. something that's sort of very difficult. And, and I think as a teacher, my, my job really is to cut down the amount of time it takes for you to reach your goal. That, that's my real job. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I can, I can do that. I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at that. I'm quite good at, at being able to kind of like let you jump ahead many years in your magic development. Or... Oh, yeah. I mean, we worked on that thing for a few minutes and I felt that I'd progressed more than I had in the last 12 months just with a few minutes. So. Right. I mean, and, and to me, that's like that's just I just have a weird understanding or perhaps a unique perspective on it. I'm going, OK, but this, this one thing will change this for you. Or, OK, this is a tell. So if you, if you hold this right like this, um, like I mentioned too, like you need to hold the side of the deck, the left side of the deck with your left mm. thumb very firmly, and that will get rid of the tell 
of the left thumb like curling in or crooking as the, as the uh, deck gets taken by the right hand. Sure. Um, and it's just it's little things like that, just collecting moments and finding out where people's obstacles are. Uh, once you find out what people like get hung up on, it's it's almost like you can find a solution for it, and it's not terribly difficult usually. It's usually like everyone gets stopped at the same place, and I see repetitive patterns of difficult yeah. moments in technique. So by having a um, what I what I hope is a, a more thorough understanding of things, I I like to be able to explain those moments to people that really give people like those aha moments. So I was like, oh, oh now now it works, you know. And yeah, for yeah, everyone, yeah. it's different. Like I I have a. a Really good friend in uh, in California who was just holding the deck with really deeply in the hand, you know, and the, and he'd taken lessons with some really great magicians, and the the one thing that we, and I just couldn't figure it out. I'm like, well, how are you having such challenges with this? And then eventually, what we discovered was he didn't realize that the deck's not supposed to be flat against the palm. Wow. The deck is really held up at the fingertips, and the question is just, you know, the, let's say the right long edge of the deck is against your left fingertips. But the left edge of the deck can be at varying parts and portions of the left thumb, whether it's being held by the big sort of meaty, fleshy muscle uh, just below the, the, the joint where the thumb meets the hand, or whether it's sort of being held up almost at the thumb tip in a, a kind of um, kind of like a, um, not quite a biddle grip, but I suppose like a side biddle grip from the, um, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So just, just like the position, like where the deck is, it's just understand that there's actually a huge gap below the deck and your palm was a complete like life-changing moment for him because the fingertips are now at the edge and now pushing two cards off or one card off becomes very easy. The, the tips of the fingers have great feel to it so you can be like, it's much more tactile. So if you're working on something like a, a double lift or you're working on a second deal or especially something like a top change, you know, you have minimal fingers getting in your way, which right. is, I think, an integral, huge, huge help, um, which I think is just an integral part to kind of like find uh, sleight of hand and technique, just understanding yeah. those, those tiny points. You're quite vocal about bad magic and how people <laughs> stop doing bad magic. What do is better magic? bad magic? And why bad magic do is, why do I dislike it so much? Well, let's, okay. First, we have to kind of identify what I consider it to be because it's so variable and it's very easy for, to take a statement like that out of context. And I think sometimes I get painted with a very broad brush. That's why. Um, <laughs> Unity to talk about it, Mr. Cope. Let's talk about it. Um, okay, bad magic. What's bad magic? Bad magic is you finding the magic trick you want to do, but not with the method that makes it the best trick it could be. It's like it's like settling. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I have an any card at any number. Oh, do you? Yeah. Um, so uh, just look at any card, and it's like a forcing deck. And you're like, no, no, you've like you've missed the point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's like when the technique doesn't match the effect or the method doesn't match the effect properly. I think we have this this tremendous problem in magic where for some reason we've disconnected effect from method and people think like, oh no, how I do it is completely irrelevant to what happens. And that's simply untrue. The effect is the method. How you accomplish it is what the audience sees. Now most of that's probably hidden. We should try to hide the technique that makes the trick happen. But if your force requires you to count down cards three times, you can't tell me a thought-of card appears in a wallet and it's a dupe and a force, and the force is just like terrible deal-down procedure. Okay. The effect should be, you know, a, a wallet is placed on the table, the spectator is given a deck of cards, they deal down the cards once, pick them up, deal them a second time, deal them a third time, and upon the third time, they've selected a card in their mind. Like, if you don't describe the full procedure as seen by the audience like true audience perspective, you're, you're not being true in your effect. Mm. And 
that perception, like what they will see, you know, whether it be dealing or some other sort of, uh, um, I would say, often unnecessary excessive technique or procedure, if you don't include that in the effect, you're fooling yourself because the method is have them deal down the pile three times. Well, when you read the effect and it said a thought of card appears in a wallet, you never <laughs> heard the part with all the dealing. So yeah, to yeah. me, bad magic is kind of like when you lie to yourself about what the effect is because you're capable of doing the method that you have instead of like, well, the correct way is or the better way or a way that would be better to me is if they actually did just apparently think of a card. So to me, bad magic is kind of like replacing excessive technique or procedure to create um, an effect that's it's not quite matching up. That, that's usually what bothers me is excessive technique or unnecessary procedure or um, insulting procedure sometimes. Like I wrote a whole thing about the Elmsley Count and why it's a move that sort of bothers me. And that's um, simply because I, I don't think we need to count four cards for the spectators to understand there's four. I mean, visually so, speaking, we can see four cards in one shot. I don't need you to show them to me one at a time unless they're distinctly unique and each card has a, a reason to, for being sort of singled out for its moment uh, mm -hmm. to highlight something. Um, if I had to make an exception to that rule, uh, and it's not, it shouldn't be a rule, there's always exceptions to rules, but it, for me personally, I do try to avoid a move like that. The only person I've seen that has blown me away with Elmsley counts was Gabby Pereiras in, in uh, Barcelona, and he's just mind-blowingly good. And he did like, I don't even know how many, maybe like 10 Elmsley counts, and each one had such a beautiful variant in how it felt, but also in how um, the display looked. It, it didn't appear that he was showing one card at a time. It really looked like he was sort of showing four cards sort of in a flurry of sort of tossing cards from hand to hand. Um, wow. it, had a, it had such style and panache attached to it, and that was rather unique. So um, I think the rules can be broken stylistically, but that has to match your personality and your character. So, so for me, it's kind of like bad magic is stuff that just doesn't match up when things don't match up. Okay. When the effect doesn't match the method, when the technique doesn't match the method or the effect, when, when things just aren't copacetic, uh, or when something like glaringly stands out, like to me that's kind of like bad magic. I'm using air quotes. You can't see it over here. <laughs> yeah, it's an audio <laughs> podcast, Shane. Audio. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. We'll, I'll have to, I'll have to like bring that in. Air quote, uh, <laughs> bad magic, and air quote. There's, there's, um, a, there's a contrast between this nice, slow teaching and minor adjustments and helping people in that way and your uh, um what's the word need or love of brutal feedback talk to us about brutal feedback and why you think that's important uh okay yeah i can absolutely explain that so the reasoning for my <laughs> relative brutality when talking about it is i, I have personal rules of course and like i don't attack the person i attack the work I think that's important. And the reason I do that is because I think, unfortunately, magic's gotten very campy. We're, we're so excited to have a friend that does the same thing we do and has the same interests that we don't want to offend or upset somebody. And I think trying to avoid offending somebody is sort of the death of good work. Um, I need my friends to be brutally honest. Like, my close circle, I, I can't get away with anything. Like, my best friend, Tim, I was... He's not a magician at all. And I've known him since we were five years old. I was sitting there just dealing tops, like nothing. And he goes, your seconds look like, um, I'm not going to curse, okay. but <laughs> <laughs> your seconds look terrible. I said, they're tops. He goes, well, your tops look terrible. <laughs> and I'm like, you don't even do magic. Like, what are you talking about? But um, I, I like to surround myself with people that will like, like rake me over the coals, man. Like I need to be 
brutally ripped apart. I want that. I love that feedback. No, no one has ever complimented my work and made me a better magician in the process. Man. I just don't get better from people telling you how great you are. So yeah. I'm not looking for that personally, and I don't think that magicians are honest with each other enough. So my brutal honesty is, you may not like me, and I know a lot of people don't, and that's by design in some ways, and I understand that my arrogance comes across in a negative way to a lot of people, and, and, I, and that's very, I'm very aware of this. Um, but I also understand that I've got people coming up to me 10 years later going, man, you changed my life when you tore apart my second deal. Right. So I have to balance that with like, am I here to be friends with everybody, or, or do I really want you to be better at this? And in some ways, I think that it's much better for me to be super harsh about something and just tear down that, that hopeful dream that what you're doing is deceptive in the hopes that I can maybe make it a little bit better or maybe we can talk about it and find an improvement in some way. And I don't know everything. By no means do I know everything. Um, but I'll, you know, some people do come to me. and It's, it's a funny thing because it's always under a whisper or a secret. Um, but they'll always come to me with the, the idea that you know, I know you're going to be honest. And the yeah. answer is, yeah, of course I will. What have, I, what have I got to lose? I've tried to be brutally honest the entire way. Um, I think I can make you a much better magician if I'm brutally honest and if I tell you how great you are. And if you need that supportive feedback, your audience should be giving that to you in applause anyway. That shouldn't be coming from someone like me or other magicians that you're looking to uh, get help from potentially. Sure, sure. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot with one. You love magic history. Um, I do. Tell a story that you found recently that maybe most people won't know. Oh, wow. Um, a story recently. Um, oh, man, that's, that's a really put me on the spot moment. Um, okay. We can cut this out. What? No, no, it's a, it's a really good question. Uh, the, the recency thing is what's throwing me. I'll tell you a fun magic you story, found old magic history story. Yeah, go tell me. Yeah, that. yeah, that I found recently. Um, okay. You know what I heard recently that was kind of funny? I heard this way back when, but I was reminded again. Like, I'm a big fan of Decolta. Like, I, I love old French magic. And the reason I love it so much is because, like, we kind of forget how hard it was to do magic back then. Like, they didn't have, like, electricity, <laughs> you know? Like, you didn't, like, oh, let's just go in the workshop and knock out the 3D printer and we'll make a prop. Like, that wasn't a thing, man. Like, these ideas had to be so valuable to them. They would, like, risk everything to try to make it happen. Okay. So Dakota's story, Dakota was Looney Tunes, man. This guy was crazy. And I heard that he wore like several pairs of like trousers uh, in America, like, like pants, like, um, like um, uh, pants, you know, pants, trousers. Yes. Uh, when he performed because he was afraid that like demons or something were going to get him. You know, oh. like he was like... And trousers would protect him from this. <laughs> apparently multiple pairs at the same time, you know, and it was a baffling one. Actually, you know, I'll tell you a great Dakota story. So I read this a little while back, but um, so Dakota was working for, I think it was Masculine and Devant, and obviously in the UK and London at some point, yeah. and uh, he got sick. He couldn't do the show. And this, this story was very telling about Dakota to me. So Charles Bertram, the court conjurer, was around at the time, and he looked kind of like Dakota. So he said, and he'd seen the act a million times. So he goes, you know what? Just let me do the act. He goes, don't change anything. Just let me do the act. So Charles Bertram did the whole show as Dakota, <laughs> and nobody knew the difference. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yes. Now, now, hold on. Now, there's a lot of information in that small story. Dakota had to be so good that other magicians not only watched him once, but watched him so many times, they committed it to memory. Yeah. There's no video playback on this. You went and saw the show, and Dakota did not give away secrets so much. I mean, there's all kinds of little legends about like how the spring flowers got into the common world and we kind of forget how much he's invented like this dude invented a lot of stuff a lot of silk magic was more or less invented by him i mean 
We've got the vanishing birdcage was invented by him. The multiplying billiard balls by him. Spring flowers was invented by him. Not so much a classic, but the expanding die was Dakota. Like, this dude was knocking stuff out like crazy. Bertram had worked out how everything was working and could do it. I think they were friendly. I, I assume they were friendly. I haven't read that so much, like, if they had the connection like that. But, like, I presume he used the props to Colt to use, because otherwise, like, that'd be a hell of a show if yeah. you had to, like, like, what else are you going to do? Um, oh, do you know what Dakota did? I don't know if he invented this, but he certainly pioneered a particular way of doing it. The card fountain. I think Dakota invented the card fountain. Yeah, isn't that wild? Like, the changing cards, the trick of his is brilliant. Um, the silken suit plates is a mind-blowing trick. I'm not sure if he invented it, but he did it really well. The Vanishing Birdcage is probably my favorite example of, like, magic that got really ruined throughout the years. And one of them. Because DeColtis was great. Apparently he had this birdcage on stage, and he had a bird in it. And he picked up the bird and took it out, and the bird vanished at his fingertips. It didn't get hurt or harmed in the way, uh, in, in the method or anything. And then after that, he had a birdcage he didn't need because he didn't have a bird anymore. So he gave that a toss in the air, and the birdcage vanished too. That was the trick. So it's motiv- there's a motivation for vanishing the cage because he doesn't need it anymore. Exactly. And it was like an actual hanging cage, you know, like it was a thing that was there. It wasn't like I come out holding a small square and make it disappear, (laughs) um, which is what it's sort of become, you know. In contrast to the history, what excites you about magic today? Oh, that's a great question. Um, You know, magic today is interesting in that I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this concept of real magic and the idea of letting people experience something that's more than just a laugh. You know, I feel like magic's become not a clown's game, but like we we're aiming for reactions that I think make us feel good. And I'm really interested in magic that makes the audience feel different things. So right now I'm, I'm really interested in seeing like where people are taking their magic and what kind of emotions and reactions they're trying to get. Uh, where I think the 90s was a very Copperfield era, you know, a lot of flowing shirts and dramatic poses on stage. And we kind of moved into the close up era of like kind of the early 2000s, 2000, 2010 ish, uh, where close up really sort of boomed. And the internet picked up. And I think from then to now, we're kind of seeing people um, uh, exploit, for better or worse, I'd say mostly for worse, the idea of television magic and what you can pull off and get away with on TV. Uh, I'm really uninterested in the whole black art concept and what people are doing with that today. And I'm not terribly interested in the current idea that improbable magic is the same as impossible magic. Uh, I think that people are too hung up on improbabilities at the moment. And I'd love to see when people start moving to impossibilities. But yeah, I'm, I'm really interested right now in seeing how people um, design their magic with, other, with audience emotion in mind and with an audience reaction in mind. Like, I, I like people to gasp sometimes, and sometimes the magic I'm designing, I specifically have like an idea of how I want the audience to react. And very rarely am I ever trying to get like a standing ovation. That's not usually my prerogative. Um, I'm usually trying to get some sort of like silence. I want silence at certain points. And, um, and I'm a big fan of crying, funny enough. That sounds terrible. It sounds really so does. bad. It sounds horrific, doesn't it? But I, I'm, I'm really interested in, like, can I do magic that's... I've done, I, I did this once in Sweden. I just did the Tornar Sword Cigarette Paper. And, um, and the gentleman who booked this sort of little magic um, festival uh, was in tears. And he came back and he was just like, it was so beautiful, it brought him to tears. And that has always stuck with me. And, and it, sort of re- it doesn't repeat itself you know, terribly often, but... It's repeated itself enough now that I can realize it's not a coincidence. And I'm really trying to chase that. Like, how, how can I elevate what I do to a point of either uh, extraordinary beauty or through, you know, remarkable deception or um, just uh, simple, elegant, beautiful magic that brings people to experience things that they did not expect to experience from a magic trick. Fair. 
and it will make a hell of a strapline for your website. Shane Colbolt, he'll make you cry. We have to end, and we always end with the same four quick fire questions. Are you okay? Ready? Hit me. Favorite pizza? Bacon. Ah. Oh. Uh, favorite movie? And you're only allowed oh. one. Only one. Only one. Favorite movie? Uh, probably Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, favorite person or people that make music. Oh, person or people that make music. Oh, wow. Um, uh, Ludovico and Audi. And finally, who would you rather fight? One massive Josh or a hundred tiny Andes? Hmm. I would rather fight a hundred tiny Andes. I think height's on my side on that one. <laughs> Shane, if people want to keep up with your world traveling antics, is what's the best place for them to follow you on that, their social media? Oh, um, if they want to follow me, I, I, let me preface this by saying that I'm a terrible social media person. And if you're looking for magic content, I'm a horrible person to follow. Um, that's how you kill a plug. Um, but, but, but if you do want to keep track of where I'm at and what I'm sort of doing, um, I often post stuff either on Facebook, just like my, my Facebook page. It's just Shane Cobalt. You can find me. There's a fan page and there's my personal page. Uh, you can certainly add me as a friend. I haven't reached my cap by any means. Um, but if I do, please don't take offense. Um, please uh, follow me on the other side of the page and the, the sort of fan page, and I, I'll try to cross things over there. Uh, it's just Shane Cobalt, S-H-A-N-E-C-O-B-A-L-T. And uh, otherwise, uh, Instagram. Instagram is my other social go-to, which is just Shane Cobalt. Perfect. Shane Cobalt, thank you so much for giving us your time. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, you're so very welcome. Truly my pleasure. Thank you.